Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. We're going to continue our, our study of uh, key passages in Romans. After opening with all the teaching about what God has done for us, before he tells us what to do in chapter 12, Paul opens uh, with the very first verse telling us why. It's so important before we get to what to do to have the right thinking. So he opens like this, Romans 12, 1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. We talked about that last week. In fact, I intended to do verses 1 and 2 together, but as I got to study, and I thought there's no way to cover all that in one lesson. So today, our text is Romans 12, 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm reading out of the NIV. I want to share a couple of other translations, and I put them on the screen as well. Look at the ESV. It says the first part of that verse, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. The King James Version, this may sound familiar, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then note how Eugene, uh, Eugene Peterson paraphrases this in the message. Don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out. And then notice the New Living Translation. I think this really captures Paul's words and the way he writes this. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. I like the way that's worded. And it can be done. I want to recommend that you circle, if you note in your Bible, three words. Conformed, transformed, and renewing. Because what we see in this passage is going to become the outline today. A negative command, a positive command, and then a plan of action. So the negative command, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. The word conform there is passive, saying don't let this happen to you. Don't be conformed to the world. The J.B. Phillips translation renders it. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold. It happens to you. But you should know that Paul also uses the present imperative tense. And what that means is he's saying, stop. Stop letting this happen. Because evidently in the church at Rome, at least some of the Christians there, this was happening. And so he's writing to address that problem. But what we know is it even happens today. It is possible to be molded by our world. Now, when you read the word world in this uh, verse... Don't think of globe or earth. Instead, think of the world's way of thinking, our age, our generation. One author called it a worldview, the worldview of the unbeliever that defines the age at any given time in history. So when you think or you read the word world, think of this is how the world thinks. You might remember that Paul was good at doing this, knowing his audience and being able to address, here's what you're thinking, and now let me tell you about the real God. And I'll give you an example. In Acts chapter 17, I think it was J. Oswald Sanders noted that Paul was not just trained in Judaism under Gamaliel and then obviously knew about Jesus Christ, but he was also a, a student of the culture. He knew the people. 
He knew the world that we lived in, that he lived in. And so there in Athens, he knew that the Athenians believed that mankind was, came out of the earth, out of Mother Earth, they, they would say. So he wrote this in verse 24, that God made the world and all things. Those in Athens thought that all the gods, they were in the Acropolis. That was the home of their gods. So Paul mentioned that, that God does not dwell in temples made with hands. Paul's day and time, that generation, they felt superior to those who were, who were less civilized or, or less educated. But Paul reminded them that God made from one man every nation, every tribe. But in the Athenians and others too had great pride in their country, in their nationality. But Paul told them, reminded them that God determined the times of nations and borders. Paul was able to do all of that, to teach them about God by starting where they were. But that means he understood where they were, how they thought. So think for a moment. How does our generation think? What is our world's thinking? What are the politically correct notions of our generations? What are the philosophies of this current culture? What are the messages that you and I are being bombarded with every day? Think about it. We live in a culture that is called to tolerate more and more. But if you've been watching the news of late, you understand that some are tolerating some accepted things less and less. Today in our culture, the customer is always right. The consumer is king. One author summarized the secular mindset like this. Be as healthy as you can, live as long as you can, get as rich as you can, be as comfortable as you can. Secularism is, is what it's called. It defines the world's way of thinking where man is the measure of all things. And it's really nothing new. It's like if it's, if it's good for you, then it's good. If you believe it's true, then it's truth. If it's right for you, then it's right. There are no absolutes. Does any of that sound familiar? Because that's kind of the culture that we live in. And Paul warned the believers then and through inspiration now, just be aware. It's kind of like open your eyes, open your ears, think for yourself. Because there's a thinking out there that's getting in here. It happened to the Romans and it happens to us. Paul used the phrase evil age when he was writing to the church in Galatia. Look at Colossians 2.8. He says, see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world, rather than on Christ. The principles of this world, same word in Romans 12, 2. Word appears again in 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age. That's today's worldview we're talking about. And that is none other than Satan himself. That's what he's talking about. And the mindset of the world is a dangerous thing. I put on, on your study guide the question, how do you know if you're being impacted by the God of this age? How do you know? Well, let me just say you are. Everybody is. You, we are all being impacted, maybe in different degrees, maybe we allow it to impact us different ways, but all of us are being bombarded with the messages that are perpetrated by the God of this age. I don't think we can help it. In fact, the easiest thing to do is the very opposite of what Paul is saying, is to be conformed, to be squeezed into the mold. It's going to happen 
if we don't do something about it. So how do you know if you're being impacted by the God of this age? Let me share a video with you that I think will kind of explain how this happens. And in fact, if you think, well, not me, watch this and see if you can relate. Or they just stand to up. answer that question, we set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this. Or would you? Just three beeps, and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group. But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please. Now she's alone, the crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her, except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Great, thanks. thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? We kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. But surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Here to explain what's going on in their brains is Jonah Berger of the University of Pennsylvania. This sort of internalized form of herd behavior is part of what we call social learning. Starting at a very early age, when we see members of our group perform a task, our brains literally reward us for following in their footsteps. When I saw everybody stand up, I felt like I needed to join them. Otherwise, I'm like excluded. Once I decided to go with it, then I felt much more comfortable. Conformity is how we become socialized, but it can also cause us to develop bad habits or repeat past wrongs. And it's why even this rebel who wasn't standing for any of this nonsense, eventually joined the ranks. And the only thing more shocking than seeing how easily conformity affects the way you act is that similar forces are subconsciously shaping the way you think. Similar forces are subconsciously 
impacting the way you think. Young or old, never underestimate the power of peer pressure. Does it happen to me? It happens to all of us all the time. Would I follow along? We'd like to say no, I, I wouldn't do that. But don't be so sure. Do not overlook the weakness of your flesh to stand alone. The awkwardness of being the only one. The God of this age will use anyone, anything to get to you, to impact your thinking. We are by nature conformists. And that's not necessarily a bad thing unless we're conforming to the wrong message. Last week, I mean last fall, we studied Daniel and his friends in Babylon and what that was like and how they were totally out of their culture in a foreign land that served foreign gods and how they stood out. The Bible says in Daniel 6.20 that they had a reputation of constantly serving God. It was possible, but that's not saying it was easy. So be prepared. So it'd be one thing if the day you gave your life to Jesus, when you were baptized, that, that, that you were inoculated against any kind of false message or, or a message or, or a thinking that would take you away from Christ, that that would no longer affect you. But it doesn't happen that way. You don't have that kind of immunization. So Paul warns us here, don't be squeezed into the mold of your present age. That means you and I had better be prepared to say no, to say no to the message of this world and say yes to spiritual thinking, to say no to social expectations and yes to where God's Spirit leads you, to say no to the world and yes to the Word. So the first is, is negative, do not be conformed. But then there's a positive command, be transformed. The word that appears here in the text is, is the Greek word metamorpho, where we get metamorphosis. And it means to change from one form to another. Matthew uses the same word to describe Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. That he looked different on the outside because of what was going on on the inside. And once again, this is in the, the present imperative tense, meaning keep going. It's ongoing. We live in a day, think about it, with instant food instant communication, instant everything. We have a computer in our hands, and if it's not working for a moment, or if things start spinning, we can't wait. We get so frustrated. If the former generation was the me generation, we are the now generation. And I share that because this doesn't happen immediately. This kind of spiritual formation is not instant. It doesn't happen the day you confess Jesus. It doesn't happen even in your first. Sometimes it takes a lifetime. I put on the screen there, Paul writes, be continually transformed. That's really what he's saying there. You be continually transformed. You don't just decide one day or you change one day and then you're done. This is an ongoing process. And the word he uses is the word metamorphosis. I read this week about the metamorphosis of a silkworm. That transformation of a caterpillar into a moth and the process of that. This tiny silkworm worm is, is born from tiny black eggs. It eats mulberry leaves for the first six weeks of life. It grows to about three inches long. And in this cocoon that it spins, if you were to unroll that, unravel that, it's from 500 to 1,200 yards. One string 
about 10 football fields. It's amazing. And at the right time, they're harvested, dropped into boiling water, and they are able to make the thread from this. According to Chinese legend, the first silk thread was made by a when a Chinese empress was sitting under a mulberry tree and a, a cocoon fell into her hot tea and started unraveling. I also found it fascinating that the greatest danger to the silk business is for that whole process to come to completion, for the moth to break forth of the cocoon, because when the moth comes out, it breaks everything and ruins all that silk. So these silk harvesters, they keep the moth from fully maturing by adding steam, and it slows things down. It actually stunts the growth. They finish the cocoon, but the moth is never free. I was reading about all of that, and I thought couldn't help but make the, the parallel for us as Christians. How many of us never mature, never grow, never transform, never break free from the cocoon? How do you break free from the world's way of thinking? Well, Paul tells us how to do that. So he gives us the negative command and also the positive command, but then the plan of action, by the renewing of your mind. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. The word their mind means the center of logical reasoning, ethical judgment, moral awareness. To renew our minds, as one author says, it's like deleting your old computer files and getting brand new. The old is going to a whole, whole new way of operating. The old has been done away with. Paul challenged the Colossians like this in Colossians 3.16. Look at the words. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let the words richly dwell within you with all wisdom. It's like let it move in. Let it move in. The active role we play is becoming students of the word. The active role God plays is allowing that wisdom then to be the voice that impacts your thinking. And you cannot be transformed unless you are informed. And that's the challenge, even today. I came across these statistics. So 42% of university graduates never read an entire book after graduation. You believe that to be true? 80% of American families did not buy or read a book last year. 57% of new books purchased in the United States are not read to completion. Most readers do not go past age, page 18 in the book that they buy. I'm not sure if that's true, but someone asked me about the books in my library. I've got one or two. Have you read them all? And I say, I've read in all of them, maybe to about page 18. But look at this conclusion. The majority of people living in our generation today prefer to listen to someone they perceive to be trustworthy to give them information than to read it for themselves. The majority of people living in our generation today prefer to listen to someone they perceive to be trustworthy we, to give them information than to read it for themselves. I'm not sure about any of those others, but I agree with that last one. Because I think about, think of our current way of getting the news. Do we believe the news? They've got all these people on the news telling you what they think of the news. A whole panel, and each of them is giving you their slant. You change the channel, you get a similar news, but a whole different slant. 
And you wonder how many people even know what the story is or what's going on. And if that's not enough, then they got some politician weighing in saying this. And then they got this actor coming in saying that. And if that's not enough with social media, then you and I are also commenting. And in fact, if you don't comment, well, then obviously you're against it or for it or whatever you're supposed to be. It's like all of us are commenting. We want to get our news from whatever somebody we trust says. But do we know the truth? Do we really know what's happening? I can't help but think we bring that same mentality into church. We've talked about this from time to time. Don't be the Christian who just believes what you believe because you heard a preacher say it. Or because you grew up hearing it being said. Maybe your mom and dad said it or, or the elder said it. Or you remember your grandmother believed in something. Read the Bible for yourself. What does the Word say? Let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Open your own Bible and study the Word. I want you to note something about this very important path to transformation. Paul's command to be transformed, again, it's in the passive voice, meaning be transformed. You don't transform yourself. It happens to you. We are transformed, but it takes place only as we are active in the Word of God. As we know the Word of God, your mind is renewed, it's made new, it's reprogrammed. Look at 1 Timothy 4, verse 6. If you explain these things to your brothers and sisters, Timothy, you will be a worthy servant of Christ Jesus, one who is nourished by the message of faith and the good teaching you have followed. Have nothing to do with irrelevant Irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train, your, train yourselves for godliness. Note that phrase, nourished by the message of faith and good teaching. As a side note, you know, this is the English Standard Version. Um, I chose that one because the NIV has a phrase, old wives' tales. And I thought, surely that's not in the original language. Do they have old wives' tales back then? Well, the King James Version says, fables fit only for old women. <laughs> so not just old wives, it's all you old women. You're to blame. But I looked it up, and it's actually not there. The English Standard is actually more correct to say irreverent, uh, silliness. But at the same time, we know what we mean by that. Old wives tell. There's this saying out there, I've heard this all my life. But the problem is, it's not just sayings out there, they're in here. We've heard them, and they've impacted our thinking as well. That's why we need to renew our minds. Note also the word train. Train yourself from godliness. Same word, we get the idea, gymnasium. You don't just decide to be fit, you train to be fit. We understand that. So Paul is saying, if you want to be in shape spiritually... You go into the spiritual gymnasium, the Word of God, and you work out. Change your way of thinking, and that Word, that message, is going to change you. It's going to transform you. There's an enormous difference between trying and training. We're to train for godliness, not try to be godly. And you do that when you know what godliness means, what it looks like. Imagine hearing a fantastic lesson about following Jesus. And you leave thinking, I'm going to follow Jesus every day. 
But if you don't know the Word, if you don't know Jesus, if you don't know what He did, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, how are you going to know what that looks like? Say, yeah, but I've got a great T-shirt or this cool graphic for Instagram. But do you know what the Word says? Do you know what the Word means? Spiritual transformation is a long-term endeavor. You're a part of it. And God's a part of it, working together. John Ortberg, one of my favorite authors, he likens this process to crossing an ocean. And he gives three ways that, that we kind of approach this as people, trying to, to have this transformation. He says, some of us realize, okay, it's like a rowboat. So I get to grab both oars and you just go for it trying to cross this ocean. And you row and you row and you row and it's exhausting. And eventually it's easy to give up because you feel like I'm never going to make it. I'm in this little rowboat and it's all up to me. So others kind of swing the pendulum and say, no, spiritual transformation is like being on a, on a, a raft. And you just hang on. And the grace of God will take you where he wants you. You just hang on. But John Ordberg challenges that too and says, no, that's not a true picture either. Think of it more like a sailboat. You own the sailboat. You're on the ocean. Your role is you lift your sails. You open your eyes, your ears to the word of God. And when that wind comes, it blows you where God wants you to go. In our time left, let's look at the last part of the verse. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The will of God. I think it's fascinating that we're never told in Scripture to find the will of God. We're told to do the will of God, to obey the will of God. It doesn't need finding because it's not lost. It's not ever intended to be a mystery. In fact, the word here says prove. What that means is to accept as approved after testing. It means to discern, to analyze, to determine in everyday life that God's will is, in fact, good and pleasing and perfect. But I need to give you this warning when you read through this and I go, okay, let me fill in the blanks. Let's go to lunch. Because what it says here, this requires a life. In fact, it takes your whole life. The will of God is good. So that's the first blank. That's easy. I know that. Well, yeah, you know that. But that's what the text says. But to call the will of God good requires, on our part, divine perspective. And that doesn't come automatically, and it doesn't come easily. It demands a perspective from faith. Think about Joseph from the Old Testament. Do you remember Joseph in his life? At what point in his life do you think he could look and answer the question that the will of God is good? When did he get to that point where he would say that? You remember Joseph, to be blunt, a convicted sex offender. Put into jail because of that crime. Now, we don't call him that. And we know he wasn't guilty. But he would tell you, but I did the time for it. And I wonder, at that point, when he's incarcerated because he did what was right and said no to get punished, was he at that point thinking, the will of God is good? 
Did he believe at that point? Because we know it was a while, years later. In fact, I should say many, many years later. You remember the story of Joseph when he was prime minister, was able to save not just Egypt, but, but all the area regions from famine? That his own family, his brothers, came, and he's the one who was able to give them food, brought his still living father to come. But when his brothers revealed themselves, they just knew Joseph would hold that grudge, take him down because of how poorly they treated him. But he didn't. He allowed them to live. But then the dad died, and the fear comes back. Now what? He's going to remember. Joseph was going to take us down. Look on the screen. They fell at Joseph's feet, a fulfillment, by the way, of one of those childhood dreams that they made fun of him about. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. You know why? Because Joseph had divine perspective. And he was able to say, verses 19 and 20, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. God intended it for good. The will of God is good. To call the will of God good is not just a blank to fill in. That requires divine perspective. And that only happens when the Spirit of God is transforming you by His Word. The will of God is pleasing. Some versions say acceptable. Because what's acceptable to God is what's acceptable to those who are doing His will. The transformed believer does not want to do anything that does not please the Lord. And then the will of God is perfect. Now calling the word of God perfect, again, that takes divine wisdom. There are several words that are translated perfect in our Bible. One of them means accurate. One of them means like the perfect solution. But neither of those is used here. The word that's used perfect here describes something as, as complete or mature. That would be the word that we would choose to describe what he's saying here. Same word that's found in James 1, verses 2 through 4. Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Spiritual perfection, that is maturity, comes through tests. It comes through tests. We don't always want those, but that's where we are able to look and see God's perfect will. And we need his wisdom to do that. Can you imagine asking James, so how do you know if you're in the will of God? And James telling you when you're being tested. Because that's exactly his message here. And that takes divine wisdom. Now, James translates that kind of wisdom from the wisdom of the world, James 3, verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. That's the wisdom of the world. And folks, that is out there, and that is making its way in here for every single one of us. You have a right to any desire. You have a right to use your power to get your own way. You have a right to use people for your own joy and satisfaction. 
You have a right to accumulate wealth for your own enjoyment. You don't have to share or give. You have a right to use your talents, your abilities for your own good. You have the right to ignore the truth of God's word. You have the right to ignore God himself. That's your right. And that kind of message is everywhere. Don't confuse the wisdom of the majority with the wisdom of God. Listen to James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. We all need divine wisdom because this is not playing games. It's not a game at all. In fact, if it, if it were a game, the only name I can think of would be follow the leader. Because let me close with this. Three quick points. Number one, be alert. Jesus is not the only one wanting a follower. Jesus is not the only one wanting followers. The God of Babylon is very interested, and we use all kinds of ways, all kinds of messages to impact your thinking so that your choices will reflect that you are his disciple. He wants to win you over. So be alert. And you do that by number two, be aware. Be in the know. Don't be ignorant. And to be in the know means to be in the word. Transformation will never occur outside of scripture. That's how it happens. That's the message here of Romans 12 too. You be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is how it happens. And that's number three, be active. You connect scripture with everyday life. It's not just something to agree to when you're in church or a Bible study. It's something that makes a difference every day. And if you want to break free of the old way of thinking, these old wives' tales, this, this thinking, this old programming, that's how you do it. The renewed mind is by being washed by the word, letting it live within you. So be alert, be aware, and be active. That may be your prayer this morning. So we're going to sing a song to encourage you to respond. And your response may just be for, for God to open your eyes and open your heart and be able to have discernment so that when you hear this way of thinking that's not from Him, you know it, you sense it. And to be more compelled than ever to get into the Word not just go to a Bible class, but let that word dwell within you to transform you and then to be active, to, to live it out. Or this morning, if you're ready to name Jesus as Lord, confess your faith in him as the Son of God. Let him make you a new creation in baptism by washing your sins away. Would you come as we stand and sing to encourage